Read me in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified at the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we are thankful for the opportunity to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do pray now, Lord, as we come to your word, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive your truth. Lord, that you would be at work in us for your glory and for our good, transforming us from one degree of glory to the next as we behold with unveiled face the greatness and the glory of Christ Jesus. May Christ be exalted in our midst, we pray this morning. Guard my mouth, Lord. May I say only that which is edifying for us, your people, and in all things may you be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I wonder if you think, even this morning, uh, what it is or why it is that we, we come together uh, here at church, at this building. Uh, I joked this morning, possibly it's the Super Bowl that's brought out so many people and so many guests among us. They're just eagerly anticipating uh, the game. Possibly uh, it was breakfast at the Evans home. I've heard stories already circulating of crepes Suzette and souffles, a very French ordeal, it appears, going on over at the Evans home. Uh, maybe it, it's something else, uh, you know, but, but do we often think about what it is that, that brings us and, and what it is that binds us? Now, if we went around the room, most likely everybody would say Christ, and I would hope you would say Christ, uh, but the question is, do we really understand how Christ is at the center of all that we do? I mean, do we, do we really understand that, that Christ is at the center of everything that, that we hold dear and that we profess to believe? He's at the center of our own relationships, and he's certainly at the center of his people, the church. And Paul, in this passage here, I've, I've heard it said by some that this is the, the highest kind of Christological declaration here in 1 Timothy, and, and that's really difficult to argue as, as Paul, I think, here is driving not only Timothy's eyes, but, but our eyes to one place and, and to one place alone. And it's not a place, but a, a person. He's driving our eyes to Christ, uh, to see Christ as the center of all that we do. And so if I can accomplish anything uh, this morning in, in, in my endeavors to, to exposit the word, to, to uh, teach truth, it, it is to do the same thing. It is to collectively... Uh, drive our eyes to Christ. And, and, and so I want to say that at the, the outset, that, that my aim and my goal and my hope this morning is that we leave uh, not with uh, visions of football in our head or crepes, but, but with Christ clearly front and center in, in our hearts, in our minds, in our objectives, in our goals, in our aspirations. It's, it's Christ. As we look at this passage here, these, these few short verses, uh, Paul does something here that's, that's a little bit out of character for him. Uh, he tells Timothy why it is that he is writing. Uh, this is not necessarily normal for the Apostle Paul. In fact, um, Paul uses uh, this exact word in this way uh, only five times uh, in his writing. And, and each time, what, what Paul is doing 
This is the effect I have uh, on children across the board. Um, I think it used to be Tyler's kids would constantly cry when I preached, and now it's just it's shifted a row back. Um, it's just who I am, and I apologize. Uh, but Paul, Paul only uses this word five times, and each time he does it, it sets up uh, it sets up something of increased importance. Paul, Paul does it in, in, in a sense to kind of drive attention to what it is that he's saying. I think it's worth pointing out that other places where he uses this word in this exact way is in his letters to the churches at Corinth and Galatia. And, and we know that both of those churches dealing with really heavy and weighty issues. Uh, and so what this does for Timothy, as Paul tells him why he's writing, is it, is it grabs Timothy's attention. It, it focuses his attention on what Paul is about to say. It, it causes Timothy, and, and likewise it should cause us, to kind of sit up and listen, to pay attention to what Paul is telling us. Now, as we look at this passage, these verses, there is some conversation as to who exactly Paul is directing uh, this exhortation or these, these words to, kind of what is the object of his exhortation. Uh, one way to look at this is to see that Paul is instructing Timothy on how people uh, within the church are to conduct themselves. And, and I'm speaking primarily here of verse 15. Paul says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And, and, and certainly that is, is one legitimate way to take this. Timothy is serving in this unique role over this church here, or these local churches here in Ephesus. And so Paul is telling Timothy how people within the church should behave or should function. Um, another view, or another way to, to see this text, and, and one that I'm going to argue for, and one that I think is really in line with what we see here in the whole of the letter, uh, is that Paul is uh, writing to Timothy, with Timothy as the focus of this exhortation, uh, such that Paul is calling on Timothy to know and understand how one, that is, he himself, how he ought to behave within the church. Uh, Timothy is, the, I, I think, the, the focus of this exhortation. Right? Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, you need to know how you are to behave in the church, in and among and even over the church. And I, and I, I, I argue for and, and, and push for this kind of line of reasoning because I think it fits nicely kind of within the context of this letter, particularly that uh, given that this passage here really begins uh, a section where Paul is speaking directly towards Timothy and exhorting Timothy directly, uh, and it kind of culminates in chapter 4, verse 16, where Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, persist in this for, for I'm sorry, for by so doing you will save both yourselves and your hearers. And so Paul is, is, is starting here in these verses, this kind, of, this kind of focused exhortation on Timothy, the individual, right? If we, we back up last week, Paul gave Timothy some clear instructions and even going before that of how things should function within the church, uh, talking about prayer, issues of prayer, issues of leadership within the church. And now he kind of shifts, he, he pivots a little to Timothy himself to make sure Timothy understands what's expected of him to make sure Timothy understands how he ought to live and behave in and among the church. And Paul begins this by making clear that he wants to come and see Timothy, right? He has aspirations to come and see Timothy soon and to be with him in Ephesus. No doubt Paul wants to do this uh, partly to minister to the churches there in Ephesus or minister to the church there in Ephesus, but also uh, to be with Timothy, to continue to train, exhort, and uh, encourage Timothy face to face, 
right? Remember, Paul has this unique relationship with Timothy and with Titus, these two young men who are acting as uh, direct representatives of the Apostle Paul. And Paul is pouring into these men, right, so that he might have ministry long beyond his death. In fact, 2 Timothy, again, Paul says, what you've heard from me in many witnesses, entrust to other men who are able to entrust to others and teach others as well. And so no doubt Paul wants to come. He wants to be with Timothy. He wants to strengthen the church, but he also wants to strengthen Timothy. But Paul also anticipates and expects the possibility of delay. If you follow the ministry of the Apostle Paul through the book of Acts, delay is kind of his thing. Whether that's shipwrecked or being stoned or having to be kind of snuck out of a city, uh, things don't always go great for the Apostle Paul. So he anticipates some delay. And so he says, if I delay, I'm going to write to you and I'm instructing you and telling you these things so that you know how you are to function within the local church. Now, as you look at Paul's exhortation here, specifically in verse 15, uh, there's several things that I want us to take note of in these verses. Uh, the first is the use of the word ought. Look at verse 15 with me again. I'm reading from the, the ESV here, uh, so you might have a slightly different translation, but ESV says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Uh, this is a word that, we're ought, that we've already encountered here in Paul's writing in 1 Timothy. Uh, it's a word that uh, comes with a, a relative weight to it. Uh, most recently, we saw this word earlier in chapter 3 and verse 2, where Paul is telling Timothy that it is necessary that elders be above reproach, right? Paul writes, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Well, the must be of verse 2 is the ought of verse 15. And as we said last week, for those of you who were here, uh, well, the guests are excused. You can go back and watch it on the internet. But uh, as we said last week, uh, this word communicates more than just a mere kind of suggestion. Uh, it carries with it this sense of divine expectation and necessity. When, when Paul uses this short little word, it, it's, it's forcing this reality that, that, that what he's saying or what he's encouraging or what he's exhorting uh, moves well beyond just kind of like a good suggestion. But it has this weight and this gravity to it such that just as it's necessary or it must be that overseers are above reproach, so it is necessary or it must be that Timothy understands the necessary behavior he is to have within the church. This is not something that Timothy can just kind of like write off or something that he can kind of just take and weigh. Paul is stressing here the importance so that Timothy understands clearly the manner of life that is necessary or expected of him as a servant of Christ in and over the church. The, the second word that we want to take notice of, or the second thing we want to take notice of here in this verse is, is actually the word behave. Paul says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, this might not seem like a word that requires uh, much attention or examination, but there is a danger, I would argue, uh, that we might assume a definition here for this word because of our familiarity with the word. I mean, if I say behave or behavior, all of us kind of know what that word means, especially if you're a parent. We are, we are people who observe and watch uh, and weigh behavior all the time. But if we were not to give any explanation or examination to this word, we might we might walk away thinking that the aim of this exhortation to Timothy is focused on his external behavior, right? Focused on his actions among the church, such that Paul is saying to Timothy, hey, make sure you do this and you don't do that. But if we were to do that or if we were to stop there, I would argue that that would be a, a moralistic reduction. That would be an overly 
moralistic reduction. We would be doing damage to what Paul is actually exhorting Timothy to do. Paul's exhortation to Timothy is not necessarily that he would do right, kind of according to some external standards, but Paul's exhortation to Timothy is that he would have a life or live a life that gives evidence of the transformative power of the gospel. This is a call to have an outward orientation in one's life that is set by deep inward realities. I mean, consider what Paul has already said to Timothy. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 5, where Pastor Ralph preached from a couple weeks back, Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So as Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, he he encourages Timothy to to be loving, right? This external reality, this this external behavior. Timothy is to be loving, but it's not a love that's disconnected from some deep-seated inward truth. Particularly what Paul says here, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Well, where do a pure heart and 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 a good conscience or a pure conscience and a sincere faith come from? They come from the transformative power of the gospel. It it comes about through the work of Christ in Timothy. So if Timothy is going to be a minister of the gospel, if he's going to be a minister of the transformative power of the gospel, and yet his life is not oriented according to that transformative power, then there's going to be a major disconnect within the church. Timothy is not going to be behaving as he ought to behave if his life is not displaying the transformative work of Christ in him. Because as Arnie said in Sunday school, which is a plug to come to Sunday school, you could skip breakfast and come to Sunday school. No matter how good the breakfast is, you could skip it and come to Sunday school. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Now I forgot what I was going to say there because I was too busy poking fun at Jeff, who's not even here anymore. (laughs) I did it again. But uh, we, we we want to reflect the, the truth of the word. We, we, want to, we want to read the word, know the word, understand the word, so that the word changes and transforms us. And so what Paul is saying essentially to Timothy is the same thing. Timothy, it's important that you, as a minister of the gospel over the church, have a life that reflects a transformative work or power of the gospel in your own life. And, and that makes absolute sense to us, right? If Timothy's going to stand there and he's going to preach the gospel, and yet he has a life that has lived completely divergent from the gospel, what good is his message? What good is his truth? That's what I was going to say. A tree is known by its fruit. So Timothy, essentially, let the fruit of the Spirit, let the fruit of the gospel be evident among you so as you preach and proclaim the gospel, the people who you love and shepherd and lead don't see this disconnect. Now, it's not too much of a leap to make a connection to ourselves as well. We're called to be ministers of the gospel in different ways and different formats. But we're all called to preach and proclaim the gospel. And I think it's worthy or it's, it's worth our attention to ask ourselves, does, does the life that we live, does it display itself the transformative power of the gospel? I mean, imagine somebody singing the praises of marriage and, and, and they do so uh, in such a way that kind of downplays the wonderful, the wonderful aspects of marriage, right? Like, so you're talking to somebody about marriage and they say, well, what's it like to be married? And you're like, well, it's, uh, it's great. Marriage is awesome. You should do it, if you have the time. I mean, I like being married. My wife's all right. She's great. I mean, if someone were to do that, and then you start to examine their life, too, and you see that, like, the home is equally passionless, right? Like, if that person is telling you marriage is great, and they're telling you to believe in marriage and get married, you're going to kind of see a disconnect between what they're saying, how they're saying it, and what's evident in their life. 
And, and I think the same is true of the gospel. Like, is Christ able to save? Is Christ able to save? Okay, I see a couple heads nodding. This is, this is, this is you're allowed to speak here. Uh, I know we're reformed. I get that, but you can speak. Is Christ able to save? Yeah. Is Christ able to change and transform lives? Does Christ continually change and transform our lives? Does Christ make great and many promises to us about what's ahead of us? Are they wonderful promises of a new heaven and a new earth? Are our hopes set on that? Are our realities set on that? What Christ has given us and what Christ has done for us? Does our, our, our level of passion, does our life, right, our behavior, does it proclaim the wonderful work of the gospel? And I think that's what Paul is, is stressing so, so desperately here to Timothy. Timothy, you need to know how you ought to behave in the church, what is necessary, what is required, what is expected of you within the church. And that's to let the transformative power of the gospel that's at work deep in your heart and in your mind and your soul to be put on display for those around you as you lead them, as you shepherd them, as you love them, so that there's no disconnect between your proclamation and your life. Paul further emphasizes the importance of this in the life of Timothy by reminding him where it is that he serves. Look at verse 15 again. He says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, an equally acceptable translation there would be house of God. In the house of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul reminds Timothy or makes him aware yet again of where it is that he ministers and where it is that he serves. He ministers, he serves, he labors in the house of God. Now, that phrase, house of God, is a phrase that is full of importance, full of meaning, full of depth. Uh, just a few months ago now, I can't remember exactly when, but we were going, well, last year, I forgot, it's February now. Last year, we went through Genesis. And we remember where uh, Jacob's on the run, he's going up to Laban, and he stops and he has this vision and he has this vision of a ladder and angels ascending and descending upon the ladder. And when Jacob wakes up from that vision, he says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And as we move on throughout the Old Testament, we could think of the tabernacle, we could think of the temple, and the, the idea of the house of God being where God dwells among his people, where they come to enter into relationship with him, where they come to worship him, where they come to glorify him, where they come to bask in his glory. I mean, this is a phrase, I would argue, that's not lost on Timothy, who at least grew up with some kind of Jewish instruction from his mother. And so the idea that Timothy is in the house of God, that he's laboring in the house of God, brings this sense of gravity and weight to what he is doing. Timothy, be aware of where it is that you serve. You serve in the house of God, which is, he says, the church of the living God. So this idea that God's glory, his, the fullness of his glory, which dwelt in the temple or in the tabernacle or in the house of God, now dwells, Paul says, in the church, in and among his people. Such that as we gather together as God's people, God's glory dwells among us. This is one of the most beautiful things that the writers of the New Testament unpack for us, that we now are the temple of the living God. Peter says we are being built up into a spiritual house. This, this reality that, that, that the glory of God now is not confined 
to an area, to a space, or to a building, but has moved out and now dwells in and among us such that when we are gathered, God's glory is dwelling among us. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, this is where you are laboring. This is where you are working. This is why you need to know how you ought to behave in and among the church because the church is nothing short of the house of the living God. And Timothy has a very serious task. He has a very weighty task. I think that's why Paul uses the language he uses is because Timothy cannot overlook this reality. That he has been called and commissioned to serve and to labor within the house of the living God. Timothy is not a manager of some McDonald's overseeing 14 and 15-year-olds as they're flipping burgers. <laughs> he is a minister over the church, which is the house of the living God. And so it's unbelievably important that Timothy knows what is expected of him as he does this for God's glory and for the good of the church. Paul goes on to further define the church by saying that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now this emphasis on truth, obviously within the context of Timothy, fits perfectly. Paul has already warned Timothy about the reality of false teachers earlier in chapter 1, and Andrew's going to come and preach next week, and he's going to talk about the doctrine of demons. Just as a side note, we were meeting together just talking this past week, and he seemed overly excited about the doctrine of demons. So I'm kind of eager to see what he's going to say on Sunday as he preaches about that. But no doubt, Timothy is laboring against false teachers. The church from the very beginning has been beset, attacked by false teachers. And yet, Timothy needs to be reminded that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The, 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 I'm sorry, the church upholds, proclaims, and defends, and declares the truth. Now, does that mean that the church will never have any mixture of error in it? No, there are. there's always going to be sin and error in the church, but it means that we are to be constantly laboring against that. Again, another plug for Sunday school. Arnie mentioned this morning, sanctification. What is sanctification? It is us putting to death sin and walking in deeper levels of righteousness and holiness as we pursue the Lord. We do this individually. We do this corporately. And we do it with a clear aim that we are to be people of the truth. Our aim is the truth, to cut out error, to cut out sin, to cut out lies, and to labor for truth. And I think that idea of truth is what moves Paul into verse 16. Now, whether or not verse 16 represents an early Christian hymn or some early Christian statement, it does not necessarily matter. What matters is what is declared in verse 16. We could ask ourselves rightly, what is the truth what is the truth that the church upholds? What is the truth that the church defends? What is the truth that the church proclaims? Well, verse 16 answers what that truth is. Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Paul here says, uh, refers to uh, the mystery of godliness. Mystery is a word that the Apostle Paul loves to use in his writing. You go to Ephesians chapter 3, he speaks of himself being a minister of this mystery, the mystery of the gospel. In the New Testament, uh, or in Paul's writing in particular, mystery just refers to something that at one point was hidden and has now been fully revealed. It was there, it was present, it was veiled, but now through the coming of Christ, that mystery has been made clearly known. 
Right? If you go back to chapter, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel. Right? He says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ, or partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So when Paul uses the word mystery, he speaks of something that's present, it's there, it's hidden, but now through Christ it's being revealed, it's being made fully known. Here, Paul speaks of the mystery of godliness. That's kind of a, an odd phrase. Uh, because it might lead us to think that godliness is somehow this secretive kind of thing, uh, which it's not, because in, in the next chapter, Paul is going to speak of godliness as a very concrete thing, telling Timothy that he is to train himself for godliness, right? So what does Paul mean necessarily by the mystery of godliness? Well, I'm going to take a stab at trying to figure out what that means. What I think Paul means is that godliness, true godliness, was hinted at, spoken of, uh, veiled in the past, but now through the coming of Christ Jesus, true and real godliness is now put on display. Now, when we think of godliness, we might tend to think of a list of do's and don'ts, right? So if you grew up like I did, I grew up in uh, the Southeast in a Southern Baptist church, and I would argue that in the churches I grew up in, godliness was defined primarily by do's and don'ts. If you're going to be a godly Christian, if you're going to be a godly believer, there's things you do do, and there's things you don't do. And if you don't do the things, hold on, time out. If you do the things you're not supposed to do, right, you are ungodly, you are unrighteous, you are not a good Christian. Now, like many problems, there's, there's some truth buried in there, right? As Christians, there's things we should do, and there's things we shouldn't do. Spoiler alert, don't rob a bank, right? Like if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, don't rob a bank. Don't shoot your neighbor, right? These are things that you shouldn't do. But the problem is if we boil it down to a list of do's and don'ts, then what do we do? We either, one, we crush people under a weight that they cannot carry, right? Because they constantly realize how they come up short all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. Or we puff them up with such pride as they find other people who are doing worse than themselves, right? There's two, two extremes. You're either crushed under this weight or you're finding people who are worse than you and going, well, at least I'm not that guy or at least I'm not that gal. So I'm doing pretty good and we start to get prideful. But godliness, I would argue, is not a list of do's and don'ts. Now, veiled in the Old Testament, we might look at the Old Testament and go, well, godliness really is a list of do's and don'ts. Here's 10 commandments. Here's a whole bunch of laws. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. But I would argue that this is why Paul uses the word mystery here, is that it's there, it's present, but it's veiled. And it's not till Christ comes that true and real godliness, the godliness that glorifies and honors and pleases the Lord is put on full display. And what is that godliness? Is it a list of do's and don'ts? Is it a code or an ethic that's meant to be kept? No, it's a person. It's a person. It's, 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 it's Christ. This is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. This is 
Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, clearly a vision towards his incarnation that was read from in Philippians chapter 2. It's, it, we think of John chapter 1, right? God became flesh and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among his people. He was vindicated by the Spirit. We could think of Romans chapter 1 where it says that he's, he's vindicated, declared to be the Lord God through the Spirit by the power of his resurrection. He's seen by angels. Uh, there's some discussion here whether or not talking about just messengers as in disciples or literal angels. I think it's literal angels. I think the angels... As they're watching Christ do what he's doing, are in awe of what God is doing through Christ as he's doing what he's doing. Then he's proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. The gospel has gone out and spread through all the world, and it's, and it's winning people and calling people to Christ. And then he's taken up in glory, obviously, his ascension and his installation at the right hand of the Father. And so what, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, Timothy, you need to behave in a certain way. You need to be godly, Timothy. You need to be righteous, Timothy. You need to lead the church well, Timothy. And how do you do that? You look to Christ. Timothy, you set your eyes so clearly, so fixed on Jesus Christ. And, and it almost sounds counterintuitive, right? It seems like it would be easier if there's a code. If Paul said, listen, Timothy, you need to be godly. You need to be righteous. You need to lead these people well. You need to have good behavior. So enclosed with this letter, I've given you a clear list of do's and don'ts. I've given you a clear code that you need to follow. I've given you a clear ethic that you need to keep. So make sure you're doing this day in and day out. That would be easier, wouldn't it? I mean, all of us would like that, correct? I, I know. I would like it sometimes that it's easier to just have like it just kind of all laid out. But that's not what godliness is. True godliness is not that. True godliness is Christ. And that's why over and over and over again, what are we exhorted to do in the text? To look to Christ. Think of the book of Hebrews. I love the book of Hebrews, this great sermon that's preached and proclaimed to these people who are struggling under persecution. And as he's walking through, the, the pastor is walking through all of these issues with him. What's the great culmination? What's the great answer? What's the great conclusion that he gives to them? Lay aside the sin which so easily entangles and set your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Turn your eyes to Christ. Behold him. He is the goal. He is the object. He is the prize. He is the aim. He is everything. This is why Paul says in, in Ephesians 4, I think he packages it a different way in Ephesians 4, where he's speaking to the church and he says, and God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So God, Christ, Christ has given gifts to his church, right? Um, if you're African, if you're from like Liberia where I go, there's a five-fold ministry there. We would argue it's, it's just the last two, pastors and teachers. So he's given these gifts to do what? To do what? Well, you should know, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, right? So pastors and teachers given to the church to equip the, the church to do the work of the ministry. Well, what's the aim? Not just to do the work. That's not the aim, right? The end and goal is not just to do work. What's the aim? For the building up of the body of Christ, all right? So building us all up to what? Again, what's the goal? Until, <laughs> until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, which is what? The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Like that's, that's the goal, Paul says. The goal, Paul says, is that we as a church are edified and encouraged and taught and instructed. So what? So that we become like Christ. His measure, his, 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 his maturity, his, his godliness is the goal. It's to be like him. 
Paul goes on so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by uh, waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christ is the goal. I, I don't know, like, like you, you come, we gather, and, and why? What, what, what are you looking for? What are we aiming at? What, what are we intending to do? If it's not Christ, then reorient your perspective. If it's not to become like Christ, if it's not to grow up into the, 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 the stature of Christ, if it's not to grow up into him, not a code, not an ethic, but, but him, to know him and to be found in him and have nothing else but him, if it's something else, you need to reorient your perspective because Christ is at the center of everything. Paul is telling Timothy here, Timothy, you need to know how you ought to behave. I, I think this is such a strong exhortation to Timothy. You need to know how you ought to behave in the church, and here's how you ought to behave. Like Christ, set your eyes on Christ. Look to Christ, Timothy, so that later when Paul tells Timothy to train himself for godliness, it's not a godliness disconnected from something. It's a godliness deeply rooted in Christ. So that Timothy is training himself and working himself and laboring himself to be like Christ. There's a lot of debate going around in the world right now, foolish debate, stupid, stupid. I'm just going to say it stupid debate as to whether or not LeBron James is the greatest basketball player now because he scored 38,000 points. Dumbest thing ever. LeBron James is a hack. We all know who the greatest basketball player ever is, and this is a guy named Michael Jordan. And I'm pretty sure Arnie and I will fight you on this one, correct? Are you with me, Arnie? Thank you, sir. So we'll go toe-to-toe -to -toe with any of you young people who want to proclaim LeBron to be the greatest. But when I was a kid growing up, everybody wanted to drink a citrus cooler Gatorade. Do you know why? Citrus Cooler Gatorade was Michael Jordan's favorite Gatorade. And there's a whole ad campaign that was what? Be like Mike. Right? If I could be like Mike, like Mike, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. If I could be like Mike. That's a whole ad campaign that ran throughout my childhood. Don't be like Mike. If you watch, if you watch the documentary, don't be like Mike. I don't, know there's, I don't know if there's a more petty human being that exists on this planet. Be like Christ. I think that's what Paul is saying here to Timothy. I think that's what Paul is saying to us. There's a way that we ought to behave in the church. There's a way that we ought to behave. There's a life, a manner of living that we all must have as followers of Christ, and it is nothing short of Christ himself. So brothers and sisters, if I can exhort you in any way this morning, it is look to Jesus. Look to him. Behold his greatness and his glory. With an unveiled face, drink in the greatness and the glory of our Savior who gave his life upon the cross so that we who had sinned against God might be redeemed, might be forgiven, and might be saved. Behold his beauty. Look at him. Take him in and be like Christ for this is true godliness. This is what glorifies and honors the Lord. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your word. And we praise you and we thank you for Christ. And Father, there are so many things that can distract us, so many things vying for our attention. And I pray, Lord, that you in your grace and your mercy 
by the power of your Holy Spirit would help us to push all those things away so that we might be able to behold Christ, that we might be able to see Christ. Father, the one who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed in the world, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And Father, as we see Christ, as we behold Christ, would you transform us into the image of Christ for your glory and for our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.